Questions are on the screen. Please take note of those as we will use them at the end of the message this morning. So first off, I'd like to say Happy Father's Day to pretty much every one of our men in this room. Um, I know that uh, you are grateful for your father as much as I am grateful for mine. He has had to put up and endure many years of me, uh, and as well as instilling in me and teaching me many things. Um, I'm also very thankful for the relationship that I now have with my dad, as I'm sure many of you all as well still enjoy as I do. Um, Yet after I moved out uh, out of the house, um, almost it was a kicking out. It was a, you're 18, you're going to college, here's all your stuff, enjoy life. Um, there's more kids behind you kind of thing. We got to get out. Uh, I was very grateful for when I was in, uh, grateful for the churches that I was a part of growing up or being in, from college on, where, where there was men in those churches who would pour themselves into me. And it, it seemed that wherever Christina and I would end up after we got married, only three or four places, um, the Lord was very kind in providing parental fatherly figures for us, uh, men that I could look up to, men that I could ask questions, men that I could confide and trust in. And, and the Apostle Paul spoke of, uh, of his spiritual children, his children in the, in, in the faith, and spoke to them in, in, in fatherly ways. So, so brothers, you who are fathers are are fathers to more children than you may know, and I mean that in a good way. I don't mean that in what the world would think that is meaning. Um, I don't think this morning that Mr. Steve Norris is thinking about me this Sunday, but I'm thinking of him. I don't know if Pastor Dave in Cincinnati is thinking of me, but I'm thinking of him, and as well as all the others that I'm thinking of, including many of you, all of you, in this room this morning, and so I'm truly grateful for all of you, um, and I'm watching you. I'm looking up to you, um, so thank you, and happy Father's Day to you all. Um, so we're, we're moving into chapter 18 um, this morning, and, and what we've seen in chapter 17, and now moving into 18, is one of the things that Jesus has been showing us is not only the kingdom of God and, and what is to come, but he's also showing us the reality of living in the kingdom of God, which is in our midst now, right? So how do we live in the, the not yet? How do we live in the already but, but not yet? Um, most of us in this room at some point in our lives, we've, we've experienced those dark nights of the soul. Where, where in those dark nights where the temptation just kind of overwhelms us and comes upon us that just tells us to quit. Just give up. If Christianity was real and if the gospel was so good and if Jesus is good and God is good, then why so many problems? Why so much sin? Why such dark nights of the soul? Why am I facing these things? And, and it seems like the thousands of people around me seem to be happy and, and, and enjoying life and, and, and seem to be going about their lives with absolutely no problems. Those are the 
kind of concerns and tensions and frustrations that we've been kind of waiting in for the last couple weeks. And, and these are the kind of concerns and questions that Jesus knows his disciples are going to face as they are trying to live and endure and to be faithful in the already but not yet. So looking now to chapter 18, let's, let's read what Jesus has to say for us starting in verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God or respected man. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither, I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect? Who cry to him, that was almost perfect timing, I mean, just almost perfect timing, who cry to him day and night, will he delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on earth. Will he find faith on earth? Excuse me. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and see his holy inspired word for us and for, our for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Reading this text this morning, this is an interpreter's dream come true. You would have to work absolutely really hard to miss the point of this passage. And yet there's teachers who do. The reason why I say that is because right there in verse 1, Jesus tells us the very meaning and point of this parable. This is what I want you to get out of this parable. It's his intent. And he says right there that we ought to always to pray and that we are not to lose heart. So again, these are the things that Jesus is concerned for his disciples. He's concerned for you and me living in the not yet is, is coming again. We're living in a, a sinful world, sin-stained world, and he is concerned that we would always pray and that we would not lose heart. It's fair to say that it is possible even this morning that you could be in a situation in your life which you have been dealing with something for a long time, whether it's pain or suffering, persecution, slander, and those things long enough can lead, lead us and cause us to lose hope, to bring doubt, to bring questions. Again, is this even real? 
even though you've been a Christian for a long time and you, you say, I, I know I believe the gospel and I, and I know that I have walked with the Lord for the long time, but if you walk in something long enough, the temptation will come that we will lose heart. And there's no one in this room that is not susceptible to losing heart or hope. Some of us may be more prone than others, but this is something that any one of us can give into, given the right trial at the right time and at the right length. It's hard not to think of Job in this situation, who in the very beginning, chapter 1, was strong and healthy and wealthy and popular and, and even righteous before God. And yet when God sovereignly ordained that all of those things would be stripped away, Job endured for a season. But when it became long enough and he started hearing the voice of the fools come around him long enough, and with the suffering... He began to lose heart. And this is the, the same idea that Jesus is stepping into with us here this morning. Knowing us, knowing our hearts, knowing our temptations, knowing our fears, and knowing the world around us and the things and the types of things that we're going to have to endure and live in this life. He is telling us, always pray. You ought to always pray and just do not lose heart. And this is the kind of despair that can come anywhere, come from anywhere, at any time. I have a good friend. A friend where his family and him, they moved to a, a completely new, new location of the country to plant a church. A thousand miles from anyone in any place they've ever known before. And they planted around the same time that we, we planted. And, 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 and I, ideally, they, they planted in the most ideal of circumstances compared to us. They had um, everything besides the, uh, a secularized culture, right? Um, they had supporting churches, wonderfully supporting churches. They had, he, uh, he had a, a one-year internship of training from a, from a, a, a church in the area. That was solid that any one of us, if we lived there, would, would love to be a part of. They were sent out from that church with a, with a core group of members that wanted to plant a church in the area where they were planting. He has resources and connections with people that I can't even come close to. The most ideal of situations. And praise the Lord, there still is a church there. There's a ministry there. There is a, there is a people there meeting in a school lunchroom, and they've grown in membership, and it's wonderful. And yet, even though they've had the most ideal of conditions and the most support and, and training and, and resources, they have been met, to say the least, with challenges. With challenges, many challenges. And my friend who is the pastor and the main planter, and at that time, for a few years, they have not had qualified elders. Praise God, he does now have one qualified elder that has been trained up in his church. But he had to bear the brunt and the burden for so long. They've dealt with several cases of discipline that just came out of nowhere. 
They've had core members personally slander him and his family and even come to the church and try to ask for his removal already and no grounds. The latest situation, there's a married couple who, who got a divorce because in spite of one another, they had affairs. And so they got a divorce and the husband moved away with his mistress. The wife, broken, came to them, repenting and desiring repentance, and members were receiving her in repentance and then walking with her and counseling and repentance, and, and it seemed that she was being restored to the church even though she had sinned as well, and her husband has abandoned her, and they, they actually did get a, a, a divorce. And after time, he came home. And seeking re uh, reconciliation with the church and was, and his wife and the church wanted they wanted to receive him back and to, to be a part of the church and we want you to be a part brother but let's walk through repentance man we got some stuff we got to walk through here. But he came home. And he wanted to live with his wife again, whom he had just divorced. And he had elders at this time, and they said, brother, you're divorced. You can't live with her. Not yet. Walk through this. And before they knew it, both of them had turned on them and said, you hate me and you hate our family. You want, their, you want my kids to not be with their dad. And they resigned membership and walked away. Well, the other man, he was already disciplined. Receiving slander from them and hate who they were loving and caring for and shepherding deeply. To say again the least, my friend and his wife, they have seen the hardest two and a half to three years of their lives. And praise God, they have preserved them and preserved the church. And he's restoring them so that they would not lose, they would not lose heart. And their church completely has total confidence in them, but still has been an extremely hard season for them. And I remember him telling me, I just want to quit. I mean, I just, I feel like it would be so much better if I just worked at McDonald's. I don't care that I got a PhD in ministry and theology. I'd rather just work at McDonald's and quit it all. Is it worth putting my family through these things? And these are the kind of situations that Jesus is stepping in and saying, brothers, you ought to pray and not lose heart. When we want to quit, when we want to lose heart, this is what Jesus is speaking into. Jesus is speaking into my, my friend. And he gives us this parable. And when you read this parable, you kind of read it and you're like, that's not really the best story of encouragement. This doesn't seem like it on the surface. So let's unpack that. So, so Jesus gives us two characters, right? So we have a judge and we have a widow. And the judge and the widow socially are on complete opposites of the spectrum socially. The judge, verse 2, right? His, this is his demeanor. Right? You guys know people like this. They, they depend on no one. And they need no one, not even God. What does it say? It says, they neither fear man or respected man. Jesus is not painting for us a picture of a, of a good person here. 
this is not a good place for him to be, even though he thinks he is. And, and as the judge, he was, he was the exact opposite of the righteous and just judge that we read this morning that King Jehoshaphat said should be in Israel. This is not the judge you wanted. Because a judge that does not fear God will never act justly. Because there's no other binding ethic outside of themselves. And then there comes this widow. Again, on opposite side of the spectrum. Widows, completely dependent. That's the picture he's painting. A completely dependent person for people to care for them and to give them things and to, to, to help them. And besides orphans in the Bible, widows were among the most defenseless. In fact, the indictments of the prophets were, were toward Israel because of their abuse and their neglect and of them taking advantage of widows financially and legally. And this was a very, a very familiar scenario. That's why Jesus brings it up. People would know exactly what he's talking about. And he even refers to it later, warns of it later, of the disciples talking about the, the, the scribes who, quote-unquote, they devour widows' houses, which means they take advantage of them through the law. In verse 3, he tells us that the widow would, would come to the judge. And, and all she's doing, she's just saying, dude, do your job. You see what's happening to me? Do your job. Give me justice against this person who's taking advantage of me. And Jesus calls this person her adversary. Now, isn't that interesting? Adversary. How, what's the other descriptions in the Bible used for the adversary? The same word as Satan, who also manipulates the law unjustly to accuse us to bring up others to oppose us and to tempt us to sin, our accuser, our adversary. We have an enemy who hates us and uses whatever he can to derail us and to derail our hearts. Now look at verse 4. This is the exact response that we would, we would think from this judge, from this sorry guy here. Because this is a widow. She can't pay him off. She can't, she can't help him. Helping her helps her in no way. In fact, helping her actually probably ticks off the mob bosses that are paying him off so that they can mess her over. I'm kind of adding in that a little bit. But that makes sense. We've seen TV. We know how it rolls. He's corrupt. But what does the widow do? She keeps coming, she keeps coming, she keeps coming. She writes notes, she, she writes letters, she emails, she hashtags and tweets, and she's sitting in his office, and she's waiting at his door over and over. She's relentless to the point where the, the judge doesn't get a change of heart. Like, let's not think that he's like, oh, justice, I should just give it to her because justice is what's right, and that's what... God wants me to do. No, no change of heart. It's like, no, she's beating me down into submission. And in fact, the, the word there is, a, is actually like a boxing term. Like she was literally beating him and giving him a black eye. That's the way he felt. And so what he's doing, he's like, forget it. I'm going to give you justice. 
Christina and I, we're familiar with this relentless beating. This week, it happens all the time, but this week, just when Calvin wakes up, he is hangry. Right? That's a new word between hungry and angry. I'm, I'm angry because I'm hungry. It's sin. That's all sin, by the way. Right? And he is, he is hangry. And he is boxing us with his loud, ridiculous voice. Even if it's 4 o'clock in the morning, you will feed me and I am not shutting up until you do. And this little demon is like coming out of him. I mean, it's, an, it's insane. And he's screaming relentlessly until you stick a bottle in his, in his mouth and all of a sudden he's like... The judge was beat down, and he gives her justice. But look at verse 6. Jesus says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge says. Now, without any further explanation from that point, we're, it's going to be hard to understand. It's, like, okay, I, I hear the parable. I know you want us to, to pray, to not lose heart, but... Man, I'm not seeing the connection, Jesus. I need some, we, we need some help here. And again, like I said from the very beginning, this is an interpreter's dream because this is exactly what Jesus does for us in verses 7 and 8. And through this parable, he shows us how this little story helps his followers, believers, who feel hopeless not to lose heart and to keep praying. So let me give you three things, what I think Jesus is showing us here, and then how he applies it for us. Let me show you what, he's, what I think he is showing us here. Number one, number one, God is not like the judge. He is showing us first that God is not like the judge. I love that first point there. And the reason is, is because when you're losing heart, when you're losing heart and life is hopeless and there's suffering and it's hard and it's long, the temptation in those moments is to believe the exact opposite. It's, it, the temptation is to believe that God is like the judge. The temptation is to believe that, that God is like the judge, that he isn't hearing me, that he really isn't giving me justice, that he really isn't for my good. And he doesn't want to hear from me, and he doesn't have my good in mind. And he doesn't care for my suffering and my persecution, or even that I'm being slandered. That's what we tend to believe when we get in those, in those places of disbelief and, and doubt. But Jesus is telling us the exact opposite. No, he's, he's not like the unjust judge. Look at verse 7. It says, and will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Again, the problem, as Christians, we know that. Right? We, we know what he says in verse 7 is true. But again, in the hopelessness, we have a hard time believing that. And then things get kind of compounded because then we feel guilty because we know, we, 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 we know it's true, but we are having a hard time Believing it. But in verse 7, what Jesus is showing us here is that we have a God who is our Heavenly Father who is more ready and willing to hear and answer our prayers than we are to ask them. 
He's more willing to hear and answer our prayers than we are willing to ask them. So isn't it interesting that Jesus gives us the picture of this judge in this parable to show us a picture of what we will believe when we are losing hearts about God? He's already showing us this is what you are going to be tempted to believe when you're feeling hopeless, when you're losing heart. And he takes us to an opposite side and says, God is not like that. He's not like that. The judge was unconcerned. He was unloving. He was unjust. But God is loving. And he is good. And he is gracious. And he is merciful. And he is, and he is just. And in every one of those attributes, he is infinite of. He is infinite in love. He is infinite in grace. He is infinite in mercy and infinite in his justice and holiness and righteousness. So here's the first good news in this passage. When, when, when we are tempted to be hopeless and tempted to fear, our Heavenly Father is not like the judge. And to believe otherwise is what the adversary would want you to believe. But he is gracious and he's waiting to hear and to answer the, our prayers. So that's first, that's, that's number one. That God is not like the unjust judge. And to understand that when we're tempted to lose heart, we're going to think he is. Here's the second thing. Number two, your situation is not like the widow's. Your situation is not like the widow's. And here's what I mean. Number, first of all, Jesus uses her as a good example here, doesn't he? Doesn't he? I mean, he... He shows us a good example here through her that, that when we're in a difficult part of our life, we are to remain in steadfast prayer and even persist in it and to persevere in prayer. And we persevere in that prayer because, again, the first point, God is not like the unjust judge. We don't, we're not praying harder and harder and more and more persistently because we're just trying to get God's attention. God is not Baal. He's not Baal of Mount Carmel, right? Where they were pleading and pleading and pleading for their God to show up and cutting themselves and jumping up and down and throwing more sacrifices on the fire and never shows up. That's not our God. But because God is good and loving and working for our good, then we persist in prayer, not just to try to get his attention, we persist in prayer because we know he cares and we know that he will hear us. And we're going to talk about prayer in just a few minutes more. But again, the thing that Jesus is, I think, showing us here is our situation is not like the widows. Your position is not like the widows. Your position is not like the widows. I mean, we, you, it's with no family, with no advocates, with no influence. That was the position of the widow. And yet, how it feels when you are weary and despair and hopeless is, again, how we feel is like the widow. And Jesus is saying that your situation is not like the widow. Your situation is not the widow. Look at verse 7 again. He says, and will not God give justice to his elect? To his elect. 
You see it? Here's what Jesus is saying there. Hey, you don't know who you are. You don't know whose you are. You're not poor. You're not a loser. You're not an orphan. You're not a widow. You're not without position. He's saying you are his, God's elect. You are his child. And you are beloved by God. And when he tells us that we are his elect, he is telling us that we are chosen by him before the foundation of the world, which is at the very time he set his love on you for his glory. He is your heavenly father, and he is working all things out for his good and for your glory, which includes your salvation which includes your sanctification and your perseverance and your glorification. All of that is wrapped up into what Jesus is saying there. And then he proved that love by sending his son to die in our place and to forgive us of our sins and then to adopt us into his family. And adoption is a whole other story because that then makes us co-heirs with Christ which means he loves us and he cares for us no less than what he has loved his own son. Is Jesus a Calvinist? No. Calvin just believed his Savior. And Calvin took this teaching right here and he said to a church that was facing suffering and persecution every day, don't lose heart. You are his elect. Calvin believed his Savior, and that's why he taught the doctrine of election and predestination, and he unpacked it for the church. The neglect of the doctrine of election being taught to the church, the neglect of that teaching as a gift to the church and then has been misused to become something that we just argue about has been one of the greatest tragedies in all of Christendom for the body of Christ. Because here is the glorious doctrine that Jesus himself, Jesus was a Jesusist. How about that? Is that helpful? The doctrine himself that Jesus is telling, he is telling us, brothers, this is the deepest God-ordained, decreed means for your daily encouragement from losing heart. Because when your world goes dark, this is the truth you hold on to like a rock. When it doesn't even feel like it and you're tempted to feel like God is the unjust judge, you say to yourself, no, I am his elect. And use those words. I am his elect. How many years have you been a Christian? How many trials have you faced and you've had to endure without this beautiful truth from Jesus? Because this wasn't taught or counseled to you. Instead, what most of us got, God makes lemonade out of the lemons life deals us. That's stupid. 
I'm angry about that because a moron told my wife that. When we were going through some dark times, instead of counseling us with pastoral Jesus advice, that you are his elect and he loves you, don't give up. If you get anything today, I'm yelling because I pray it sinks in deep in your I don't know if there's a connection psychologically from yelling, things sink in deeper, but I want it to sink in deep. Because Jesus is saying this morning, you are in a different position. You are not in the same situation as the widow. You are God's elect, chosen, before the foundation of the world. Even though you may are facing days, months of hopelessness, regardless of how you feel, you are beloved. That's a huge point. That's like the pinnacle of the sermon. Everything's downhill from here. That's the pinnacle. But he goes on to tell us in verse 7 more that everything's going to be made right. And that's point three. Everything is going to be made right. Verse 7, he says, And will God... Will not God give justice? When will God give justice? When will God bring righteousness and make these injustices right? When will this sin against me be made right? And Jesus is asking, even asked that same question in verse 7. and says, will he delay over long? Will delay long over them? And those them are the, the prayers, those who have been crying out and his people for, for centuries now. We've been crying out for justice and peace. Verse 8, Jesus answers this question, which I think is our question too. He says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes. I'm going to stop right there. I know I'm in the middle of the question of his. Here's where Jesus is answering the question for us. The prayers of his people over the ages for justice and righteousness and peace in the midst of their hopelessness and weariness will only come fully when he comes again. Those prayers will only be answered completely when he comes again. When Jesus comes, he will come in holy righteousness and judgment and all things, everything will be made right. Even the things that we think are hidden, nothing is hidden from the Lord. The, the vile things in, in the world, some of the most heinous, sin, murderous, abusive, oppressive, uh, thievery, slander, injustice, the things that never see the light of day, will be made right. And even the things that come to the light of day with celebration will be made right. And Jesus says, it will come speedily. It will come swiftly. Can we seek justice in this life? Should we seek justice in this life? Yes. Does God give justice now? Of course. But justice on this earth is not perfect and certainly can't make things right. If a murderer is caught, and he is convicted, and he goes to jail, I'm assuming it's a he, 
and he goes to jail and might even get the death penalty, then that is appropriate justice. And as Christians, we should be thankful for that, right? That's justice that we believe that God has given for us to be able to enact. But does that make things right? No. Because there's still a family who has lost someone in the most tragic, sinful ways ever that never should have happened. The family still has to deal with the loss. There's justice, but it doesn't make things right or perfect. But when Jesus comes, when he comes, with him will be perfect justice. And he will make all things right. There's something very comforting in that, isn't there? Because we see some heinous things that take place in this world. And we never, a lot of times, even appropriate worldly justice is never given. But God knows. And when he comes, all things will be made right. And even the things that have come against you, slanderous things, suffering, persecution, whatever it may be, any injustice, the Lord will make right. Lastly, I said there was a, there's an application, and that actually is connecting us with verse 1 and verse 8. And, and the connection is, is we would not lose heart, so let's be faithful. And you see that in verse 8. When he comes, will there be anyone faithful? Faithfulness is perseverance through constant prayer until the Son of Man returns. So let's talk about prayer for a moment. Because I think that's the application. That's what Jesus is, I think, still pointing us back to. You ought to always pray. We pray until Jesus returns so that we don't lose heart. Now, the popular Christian version of this prayer is to say that your fervent, repetitious prayers will begin to accumulate before God, and then it will bend God into winning his favor to give you what you need, give you justice in this particular case. But again, isn't that a misinterpretation of the passage? Because that makes God like the unjust judge. That God's attitude is only if they bother me enough and try to beat me down will I give them justice, or I will give them what they need. But this doesn't mean that we never engage in fervent prayer, especially in times of need. After all, that's what Jesus is telling. This is a time of need, when you're, when you're losing heart. But we don't pray because God is like the, just, the unjust judge. Or we don't pray because we're like the widow and we have no position. But we pray because God is our Heavenly Father, who loves us, and because we are His elect. And He has adopted us as sons through the work of His Son on the cross. You know, Paul gave us a wonderful example of this persistent, fervent prayer. And in 2 Corinthians 12, it says, he, he kind of gives us a little story here. 
And he says, I've prayed three times pleading with the Lord that he would just remove this thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what that means. We don't even need to know what that is. Now, Paul didn't keep coming back to God because he felt like he didn't pray in enough faith or because he didn't think because God didn't care those first two times or even the, the third time to listen. But he prayed because he knew God did care and God did listen. And in the end, God did answer his prayer. God didn't remove the thorn, which is what he wanted. But God gave him something even better than peace and comfort that Paul thought would come with the removal of the thorn. But God answered his prayer by giving him more grace to be sustained. Maybe that's the posture and position we should take in prayer when we are facing suffering and trials, when we're tempted to lose hearts. That God would give us more grace to sustain. When God seems distant, when God seems silent and he's delaying in answering our prayers. We must see how what Paul gave us perspective of that even in God's silence or delaying or distance or not answering the prayer that we want him to answer it is that God is always working whether we can see it or not. You see, his silence sometimes means that God's answer is a loving no. And that was the case with, 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 with Paul. The answer was no. But wasn't God working for his good still? And, and the good for Paul was to see the, the, the goodness and the graciousness of God to be sustained even further, which was even better. Sometimes there's silence because there's something bigger coming. You know, in our, we, we have to just think this about ourselves. In our finite minds, in our finite hearts, our prayers are often totally inadequate to an infinite God. Especially for the things that he may have in store. Think of the saints of the Old Testament. The trials that they suffered, the, the, the prayers that they might have prayed, the prayers that we heard, beautiful prayers. And yet they themselves could never imagine the glorious work of the redemptive Christ. I think more often than not, sometimes the silence of God is meant to build up his church so that we would depend upon him entirely and that our prayers also may mature, which seems to be the case with Paul again. You see, biblical faith is exercised by completely depending upon him. Even in the trials, even in the fires, even in the adversaries, even with suffering and pain, it's believing that is all meant to strengthen us to deepen our faith, and to deepen our prayers. We have to understand that in each of us, we are, we're prone to just be independent. And, and granting certain prayers that we want sometimes would only lead us to more self-sufficiency and independence, which then leads to pride. 
one of the greatest joys of my life has been seeing what the Lord has done in my life and in your life through one of the darkest and hardest times of my life. When I was crying out for justice, when, when I was crying out for justice for those who were slandering me and kicking me out, being torn from a place, we were torn from a place that we always knew, confused, hurt, hopeless even, praying and praying and praying. And yet, has God not yet answered our, has he, has he not answered our prayers in a way that was completely unimaginable for me at that time? and maybe even for you. Where, to be honest, we are in a place this morning as a church, years later now, where we can talk about the doctrine of election and rejoice together. We can talk about it freely and openly and not get angry about it. Praise God for answering our prayers according to his glory. And that then gives us joy. Let me wrap it up. Jesus told us to always be in prayer and not to lose heart. And, and now we know why. Because God, our Father, who is holy, just, righteous, and sovereign, omnipotent, he loves his people. And as Jesus said, he will give justice to his elect and it will come swiftly. And we may grow weary in life, but, but let's not grow weary in prayer. Let's pray. Let's cry out to him in our, in our time of need, and he will answer our prayers perfectly and sovereignly. He will enact justice for our good. Maybe now, but probably not. But he will in his time. And it will be perfect. And it will be made right. If, if the thorn remains, then we know it's because he wants us to depend more on his grace. And we know that from other places by where he lavishes grace. Grace upon grace. So don't lose heart this morning. If you're there this morning, don't lose heart. If you're about to get there, or you're on your way there, or you probably will be there, don't lose heart. Pray. Pray for others. Pray for each other. Lean upon each other as we grow in this. Pray in faith. Pray for faith. Because the kind of preserving faith is the kind of faith that will get us all the way to the end and ready for his second coming. Let's pray together now. Thank you for your word to us, O oh God. Thank you for the encouragement that you have shown us through this. Such beautiful things that maybe we've never considered or, or maybe we're in that moment of losing heart or tempted to lose heart. Let us see this shot of truth, these promises, and hold dearly to them. And continually teach us to pray. And our prayers that they would 
mature, O oh God. We love you. We thank you. Help us as we respond together for the glory of your name. Amen.